Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor, and with me today is Dr. Jamie Marish. Jamie is a clinical trauma specialist, expressive artist, writer, yogini, performer, short filmmaker, Reiki master, TEDx speaker, and recovery advocate. She unites all of these elements in her mission to inspire healing in others. In 2015, Jamie was presented the President's Award from the Association of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Addiction Professionals, and their allies. In 2019, Jamie was granted the EMDR Advocacy Award by EMDR International Association. And among this long list of accomplishments, Jamie is also the founder of the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. Today, we're talking with Jamie about trauma recovery and mindfulness and the creation of her institute. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Graham. I'm glad to be here. Nice to be here. You know, I know that in this field, most of our endeavors have a start that has some significance as kind of a a building block. And I know your beginnings started with your involvement with humanitarian work in Bosnia. Take us back to that time. That's in the early 2000s and how that led to kind of a foundation and dovetailing into this field that you're now living. Sure. Uh, so my family is Croatian in origin. A uh, couple sides of my family have some other Slavic roots in them, but my mother's side's Croatian, and I, we grew up with a very strong connection to our Croatian identity. And there was, of course, uh, you know, a horrible war there in the 90s. That was the fallout of post-communism turmoil and the former Yugoslavia breaking up. And so I think that was my first real awareness of trauma on a global scale, because we have family over there. And I was studying what was happening in current events as a student at that time. And it was a really kind of interesting fusion of things that happened because when I finished my undergraduate degree in 2000, I was in a very bad way in my own life with my own trauma that needed healed. And I didn't know it was called trauma at the time or dissociation, just I had a lot of problems and I drank and used drugs to deal with them, right? And I I was kind of reaching a dead end on what to do in terms of help here. Uh, A lot of that was because of a lot of family messages about, well, there's nothing really wrong with you or you just need to go back to church. I mean, I want to get into that whole story other than professional therapy, other than what was available at the campus counseling center was not really on my radar. So being kind of the extreme artistic daredevil person that I am, I said, let's move to Europe because I had backpacked and I'd studied in the country the previous summers. And at the time, it's what in recovery circles we'd sometimes call a geographic cure, like put a backpack on. But it ended up being exactly what I needed to do because it was there that I met the people who not only ushered in my personal recovery, but Mm -hmm. helped me to connect a lot of the dots about What I was seeing, because the primary work I did there was as an educator, as an English teacher, as a music teacher. I did some other language assisting there. And I worked with kids who had just survived not just a war, but the economic and social cultural fallout of communism having ended. So it was a very interesting time to be there and and learn a lot about how social conditions impact people's ability to process. And I was also able to see a lot of the context in which my own grandparents came from. And it was everything I needed to do at that time in my life. And 
I've been continuously clean and sober from drugs and alcohol since 2002. That happened when I was living there. My first mentor, Janet Leff, also taught me what trauma is and how it applies to my own life and how it applies to the children I was working with. And I came back to do graduate school at her suggestion. I love that. You know, it, it sounded like a good decision to have grabbed that backpack. Yes. <laughs> just gone. I love, you know, sometimes it's interesting, isn't it? When we look back, oftentimes we, we track it back to, you know, I met that special someone and they were mm-hmm. able to kind of help me connect the dots in ways that maybe to date I hadn't been able to. Janet sounds like that kind of person for you. Janet was very much that person. And to me, the most interesting part of the story is we only lived about 45 minutes away from each other in Ohio. Is that right? And, and we met over there. In Bosnia, is that right? In Bosnia. Yeah, because she she was not Croatian background, but she had a large devotion to a lot of what was happening in the Catholic Church in the country. And so she made, I think, 12 humanitarian aid trips during the war itself. And then in her retirement, she ended up settling over there for a few years. And yes, I'm from the Youngstown, Ohio area. She's from Chagrin Falls. And we met there. So... That's one of many reasons I know it was was meant to be. be. (laughs) Truly meant to be. You know, I love what you're sharing too. And I appreciate kind of taking us down this path just a wee bit. When we enter this profession, it oftentimes grows out of our own healing and our own recovery. Mm -hmm. And you're saying something similar here in your transparency with us here. What, What are you bringing to your work now in this trauma recovery and in this intentional mindfulness and the way that you work that does originate from your own personal work as you grew and you healed and you recovered? Such such a dynamic question. I'm trying to think where I want to go with the answer because I, I think everything I share with people now yeah. is some form of what has been shared with me. Yeah. And a lot of that was the early work Janet gave me. Some of her teachings I still impart in one way or another. And what a great they, legacy. Yeah, because they so impacted my life. And I've had the fortunate experience to have been met with a lot of other tremendous healers since, and in the 20 years since. I've had several great therapists, and I work with a shamanic practitioner and and a bunch of different holistic healers. And same thing. I, I feel everybody's been put in my life to reveal some kind of layer of the healing that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a 12 step saying that that I like, which is you have to give it away to keep it. And I really think that typifies a lot of how I operate. You know, as, as I was learning more about you and, and, and got a chance to watch your TED talk and different things you've done and re- uh, written and had a chance to read those. And, you know, you, you come at it from such a multi-directional place and you know, I kind of like to get into this right now around in the process of healing, talk therapy can really be a very healing and very important process. But there's also other ways to bring in things that we can shade into the healing and therapy process that are adjunctively really beneficial. You bring in things like, you know, the artfulness piece, you bring in the dance, you bring in the movement. I'd love to hear about what in your own personality and in your life, had you bring these other elements into the healing process around and to complement the talk therapy Mm -hmm. process? Sure. The first thing I want to say is I do think as human beings, talk is still very important because even though I do have a reputation as being more holistic and embodied and emotion focused, 
I think of those first conversations I had with Janet and they were conversations. They were her being able to validate my experience and really deeply listen to me. Yet I've always had an artistic streak to me. So I think it was, I've been on stage since I was three in one form or another. So I think it was very natural for me to go that route as a clinician, as, as a helping professional. Because when I look back at my own life journey, I believe it was because I sang because I was on stage, because I danced. And a lot of the the strongest dancing I did was in the basement of my parents' house. I had a Mickey Mouse record player and I would put on records and just dance to it. And it was a way for me to, to work out some emotional stuff that was going on before I even realized just how distressed I was as a kid. And then as I, I went to teach English, uh, and, and I had worked as a high school speech and debate coach before I went to Europe. I worked as a high school speech and debate coach after I came back from Europe. And I've just always been impressed by the, the power of performance and art as a teaching mechanism. There's, there's something about singing songs and dancing dances that does it where worksheets don't quite cut it when you're trying to teach English as a second language. And so it, it's just very much a part of who I am. I mean, I'm that type of person that's always singing in my car. I have kept a sketchbook, even though I don't fancy myself a real technical artist. I just like to have some kind of outlet, right? I always have journaling, writing short stories. So when I look back at my own healing journey now, I think I was so open to go there emotionally because I had had these expressive outlets as a kid. And to quote a contributor in my new book, because I just did a big interview project for my latest book, the woman said, the art saved me growing up. And I think, you know, we're looking at art as a multifaceted thing here, not just visual art, but all the arts. And so because I had such a strong connection to it, it just was very natural for me to do that as a teacher, as a clinician. And it really comes down to what channel do you have to express what you've been stuffing very deeply inside? Because words often don't cut it. Yeah. So I, I think when you talk about there's other ways to kind of mine down into those little crevices and little niches that maybe we don't even recognize fully, being able to use other ways to do it, whether it's the music or other forms of creative expression. Mm-hmm. You talk about some of your experienced oriented methods for healing and trauma resolution and even, even in the conscious dance, being able to yes. use movement to elicit mm-hmm. a greater understanding. I know you've done some work also with the, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce it here properly, Kripula, Palu? Oh, uh, Kripalu Center, Center. Yeah, Kripalu mm-hmm. Center for Yoga and, and Health in uh, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I know this even led to your involvement there, led to your own unique practice, which now exists in the form of the dance mindfulness. Tell us a little bit about right. that piece. Yeah, so I, it's interesting you mentioned Kripalu because, I mean, Swami Kripalu, the originator of that lineage, I, I've considered my teacher since getting into yoga. And I, I started going to Kripalu just to take some kind of general health weekend workshops. And having been a, a student in the Kripalu tradition, it was just natural for me to go there. Right. And I found conscious dance really earnestly there. And there's a lot I love about various other conscious dance modalities, but fundamentally it struck me that dance was my main way I was practicing mindfulness because especially at that time we were really mounting our discussions about honoring it, its ancient roots most definitely 
but seeing how there's a lot of modern applications for it to helping us live a fuller life. And I was also stirring with kind of, is there something that exists in the middle between conscious dance, which could be a little less formal and mm-hmm. dance therapy, which can be super formal. Mm-hmm. And in that process is where I really developed dancing mindfulness. And I always like to say, and I want to be very clear about this. I did not invent dancing mindfulness. Dance and mindfulness are two of the oldest healing mechanisms on the planet. Mm-hmm. What I think I, I've been able to do in my work is kind of make it available in a way that's palatable to modern audiences using music that they might like and they might connect with. And we started primarily as a dance practice, but now we, we've really expanded our definition of dance to include all the different expressive arts. And for example, sometimes on our retreats, people paint and dance simultaneously. They dance and then they write and then they dance some more and singing along with the music that we're dancing to. So there's there's always these opportunities for fusion with the other expressive forms that we like to embrace. I like that. You know, we, we oftentimes throw around the term mindfulness, but mm-hmm. I'm seeing you bringing all of these different elements that you're involved in into ways to create, it sounds like, this institute for mm-hmm. creative mindfulness. Before we, I'd like to get into that and what you guys offer and what, it, mm-hmm. what, what it, you people engage in and give us our listeners kind of a sense of if I were to be involved in this, here's what I'd be looking to mm-hmm. participate in. But what do we mean by mindfulness and what's yeah. the importance of that in our growth? Great question. Love this question. Because a lot of modern folk and modern practitioners can think of mindfulness as a relaxation technique. Mm -hmm. And I like to make this joke that if you go on Google Images right now and search mindfulness, you'll usually see a perfect looking person sitting on a beach underneath a tree (laughs) with this blissed out look on their face. Right. And I tell my students, most days when I meditate, I have this, this grumpy look and I'm oh, yeah, just, yes, I could be in the moment. And, and although mindfulness can certainly help you to relax, can help you to fall asleep, can help you kind of ease into the sense of life, mindfulness is fundamentally the practice that helps you be able to be with what is. And when you dissociate or kind of get pushed out of the present moment, it's the practice that fundamentally helps you return to the now. Yeah. And the now can suck. Yeah, it can. I want to be very clear about that. It can be very hard, but fundamentally, that's a lot of what life and recovery and healing asks us to do is how can we be with what is without destroying ourselves? And that's where practices, sometimes it's sitting meditation, sometimes it's yoga, sometimes it's dance, sometimes it's singing, singing at the top of my lungs badly, just because it's helping me to just kind of be with it. And so as much as I do like sitting mindfulness practice, because it, because I I think it helps me so much to be able to get quiet and turn off the noise. Dancing is also a way that I practice mindfulness too, because it helps me to be fully in my body. And so fundamentally, when we talk about mindfulness, it's the, the active embrace of being with what is and and returning to what is when you wander off from it, because that's part of the original word origin of the Sanskrit word is recognizing that we're going to wander and then we have to remember our natural state, which is awareness and nowness and being here. So my institute, Institute for Creative Mindfulness, I went with the name because I really saw mindfulness and mindful values and education being the central kind of guiding principle for how we teach. The two main programs that we offer right now as educators is we do an EMDR therapy training program, which is probably the most extensive bit of our work. 
And we do other trauma-informed education programs, largely for clinical professionals. And then we also do an expressive arts training program of which mindfulness is a part. And it's interesting because expressive arts therapy, I often joke that's the more fun part of what I do. EMDR can be a little bit more technically challenging, but this idea of being mindful with how we educate our students who Mm -hmm. come to us for training, how can we be mindful as clinical practitioners? How can we embrace our own mindfulness practice as a way to be not just better clinicians? Because I mean, yes, it can help you be a better clinician, but you're worthy and deserving of taking care of yourself. And we want any student who comes through our program to really know that. You know, it's an interesting thing when you talk about this mindfulness, and, and I appreciate you kind of taking us down that path to define it and, and, and make it, I think, a little more tangible and understandable mm-hmm. for us. You know, one of the things you started out with is, and, and you even shared it in your own, you know, willingness to be transparent with us. When we go through difficult times, we naturally, because of our defense mechanisms and all the parts that keep us safe emotionally, we avoid things. You know, the old, oh, sure. you know, the, the, the pleasure principle says, seek pleasure, avoid pain. Uncomfortable mm-hmm. times sitting with things can be very, very hard. And, sure. and what you're describing here is if we can, through the therapeutic process, whether it includes, you know, the conversation, the holding space that therapists bring, the different modes of expression, and getting in touch with oneself, basically we're building some emotional muscle affective tolerance or emotional muscle, allowing people to sit with what is without the old tendency of having to avoid that, maybe even in self-destructive ways. It's not that we mean to be self-destructive. It's just so hard to experience or hold. And what you're saying is if we can put those things on hold and we can encourage people maybe to sit with us and hold that space for them or to engage with them in a process of expression through dance or music or other things, including conversation, we get to kind of move into a place where that discovery doesn't have to be so threatening. In fact, Correct. it gets to be almost kind of an invitation of let's, you know, build some emotional muscle here and, and, and I'll kind of spot you, you know, as you do, and you build that yourself. And then we get to lean into these things, even if it sucks, at least we can own it and sit with it and begin to move through it differently. So I love what you're saying here about this. Yes. The longer I've done this work, I'm convinced that one of the greatest problems that plagues humanity is fear of our own emotional capacity, Absolutely. fear of Absolutely. what we feel, fear of what's coming up for us. And, and to be fair, so many of us have been shamed for expressing what we feel, or we've been socialized with messages like, boys don't cry, men, yeah. men aren't supposed to feel feelings, or in alcoholic yeah. homes, regardless of your gender expression, there could be this messaging of don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. And yeah, and, and, and then on top of that, when, when you talk about those things so clearly, those things don't allow us to develop a competence around emotions. We don't get much practice. If I'm told as a guy not to, you know, not to feel or my, you know, my, mm-hmm. in my family, you know, in an alcoholic family, I don't feel, I don't talk. I don't learn how to even to identify some of these things within myself. I, I feel mm-hmm. happy and I feel angry. Those are my feelings. Right. Or if, if I start to lean towards something that's uncomfortable, boy, I employ all kinds of things, like you're saying, to avoid what I don't mm-hmm. have the competence or mastery or know how to deal with. You're so right. And I I think it's not our feelings that cause us problems in the long run. It's everything we do to try to keep from feeling them. That's right. And and, and it causes distress in our body, distress in our mind, distress in our soul. And, and I, and I never want it to come across as, you know, just feel your feelings because that could be hard when it, it is hard when you've been trained not to, but when you can learn how. Yeah life, I'm not, I'm never going to say life is easy. I, I want to be very clear about that, 
but you you can embrace the ups and downs. You can learn that you feel what you feel. And maybe how do I, I liked your use of the term spotter. How can I seek out the support in my life, folks who are most able to help me through that and not shame sure. me for it? What are some expressive practices I have, other coping practices I have to be able to express or at least get those feelings out safely? And sometimes it is just a good conversation with a listening, caring friend. But I'm, I'm grateful after 20 years now on this recovery journey that I've gotten to explore and experiment with all these different ways that I can hold capacity for feeling. And it's still a work in process. I'm still learning. We're, I think we're all still going to be learning because there's we didn't come into this human life with instructions for how to win the game. I don't even think it's a game you could win. It's just how can we be with what is and hopefully be as happy and fulfilled as our natural state will allow us. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Most of us spend more time at work than anywhere else doing anything else. So why not spend that time in a job you love? Introducing Triad's Jobs Marketplace, the only job site dedicated specifically to behavioral and mental health professionals. Featuring more than 1,000 open jobs from dozens of behavioral and mental health employers and searchable by location, professional field, employment type, specialization, and more. Jobs Marketplace helps you find your next career opportunity. Full-time, part-time, or gig time, make the most of your time. To access Jobs Marketplace, register for your free professional account at hellotriad.com bht. That's hellotriad.com bht. And then click to Jobs Marketplace. If you're already a member of the Triad community, visit app.hellotriad.com jobs. That's app hellotriad.com slash jobs. Visit us today and take your next career step tomorrow. Yeah, yeah I, I, I like the idea when you're saying, you know, it's almost like this distress risks us foreclosing on being mm -hmm. able to work through something. And mm -hmm. it's not that we're even understanding of that or, or intentionally doing it. All we've been conditioned to do is to recognize that I'm not feeling very comfortable right now. And what do I need to do to avoid that feeling, mm -hmm. even if it's costly? Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is if we can create that space to lean into that in a new way, maybe spotting like you're reminding us, take us into then with your institute and this creative mindfulness. It's an intentional process. So using EMDR, how, how, how do you see the benefit of EMDR in this process? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the uh, artistic side of the, of the program. Talk about the EMDR. How is that benefiting people in working through some of these things that could be really charged and really want to be avoided, but you're, you're walking them through it with kind of a dual attention and helping them work mm -hmm. through it. Help us understand that. So EMDR, which of course stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, it can be hard to understand if you've never experienced it. And one of the reasons I'm so all about it is of course, I experienced it at a very early stage. Yeah in my recovery and i had about two years into my chemical sobriety at that point and i was working in my graduate internship and i was still being pretty profoundly triggered by mental health issues i'll just kind of summarize it at that and it was a graduate professor who recommended that i try out emdr and of course it sounded bizarre on the yeah. surface like how will moving my eyes back and forth or tapping my body back and forth help in any way 
And I discovered, like so many other people have as well, that it really ends up getting at the level of the brain that exists below words, underneath yeah. the words, where so much of the distress is stored. And of course, it can work together in concert with words and emotions and feelings and everything. But there's just something about this this fundamental approach of EMDR therapy that can can really fast track the healing process. And even as I say that, as an educator of it, I'm always clear EMDR is not a quick fix, especially if you have complex trauma and dissociation. Yeah. There could still be a lot to wade through that yeah. EMDR can be a useful tool in, in helping you to be able to do that. And the thing that I really like to, to highlight in the writing I've done on EMDR and the way our institute trains it is recognizing that the founder of EMDR therapy, the late Dr. Francine Shapiro, was a mindfulness meditator. I mean, she's admitted that in her writing. We're not exactly putting new news out there about that. And she identified Stephen Levine as her teacher. But it seems like as EMDR progressed, she downplayed a lot of that heritage of her mind-body connection work that she did because she really wanted EMDR to be embraced as a technical modality right. that it, that could be mainstream, which it now is. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of my partners, especially in, in, in ICM, and I have said, well, now that it has been more established, let's go back to a lot of those mindful roots and how we teach it. Because there's so much of the EMDR protocol that's just so obvious to us mm -hmm. that it came from her mindfulness practice. So even as people come to us for EMDR training, we're making sure that we're teaching them mindfulness activities in a variety of ways throughout the training. Mm -hmm. That it's not just, okay, here's the technical EMDR training, but we want you to learn a lot of these skills for your own benefit as a that's person. Right. And then, of course, you can pass them along to clients, but we fundamentally feel EMDR can be easier to teach and understand when you do it with that that mindful route. And then, of course, expression can be brought in. And I realize some listeners may know more about EMDR than others, but the EMDR protocol itself can be very sterile. But as one of my collaborators and faculty members likes to say, EMDR does play well with other therapies. Yes, and I very much embrace that integrational nature of EMDR. And so, for example, when you're preparing a person for the emotional journey that EMDR therapy can take them on, how can you use some of these expressive modalities in that process? Maybe it's keeping an art journal in between sessions. That's really good. Maybe it is being able to end each session with a yoga pose or a dance of some kind. Or yeah. if you can't answer a question with a number scale like zero to right. 10, how can you draw it out? Really and good. a lot of these approaches are used a lot with young people or for adults who have younger parts. And for me, there's just a lot of opportunities for fusion. I think it's a beautiful approach to helping folks work through, you know, you t I, I oftentimes share with people that I do the MDR with, we've got this kind of blessed opportunity to activate the brain. You know, I'm going to mm -hmm. be doing some tapping and I'm going to be asking you to do, you know, some focusing on some things and to hold those things. We'll do around and I'm going to stop and ask, you know, what might you be noticing? And, but what we're doing here is we're just activating in uh, a natural inherent healing process that's there for us to activate. And the brain mm -hmm. knows how to heal. The body holds a memory, the brain knows how to heal. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing, we're kind of getting past, like you're saying there, we're kind of getting past that secondary consciousness, which we live in, which is good. And oftentimes what happens is that as much as we want to, it's hard to get down to that primary consciousness mm -hmm. where all the, mm -hmm. where all this stuff, like you're saying lives and the mm -hmm. EMDR begins to kind of, kind of cut through almost like that, you know, blood brain barrier with medications, Right. this EMDR begins to kind of go through that emotionally brain barrier 
that allows us to access these things and to begin to work through them, you know, desensitize them, re reorganize them in a way where we get to carry them differently and sometimes even have yes. them so far away that they're not as a, a, in, impactful nor defining of our lives. So what a great addition to the practice that you're doing, bringing that EMDR in. So here's how I like to say, describe the interplay between EMDR and expressive arts that EMDR has been very helpful for me personally and with my clients as almost like the psychological surgery. It's the more fast, rapid tool that can usually bring people relief pretty quickly. Yeah. Not quick, but no. it, it helps you certainly kind of get at the root of stuff. But I feel expressive arts helps with what is often called the slow medicine, the day-to-day helping you experience transformation over time, having a practice and an outlet. Cause I think there's no harm at all in helping people experience methods that give them some more immediate sense of relief, as long as it, it's in, in a healthy way that's in the service of their recovery. Cause I think relief from pain is fundamentally what drives us to get some healing. But I also know and have done the healing journey myself and have guided people through it that there's no quick fixes with healing. And just like a lot of the impact of trauma or addiction has damaged our life on a day-to-day -day basis, we also have to commit to some kind of healing and recovery on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that's where expressive practice really helps me, that there's something I do every day, whether it's picking up my guitar, drawing in my journal, just doing a couple expressive dances through the house. Even if I don't have a big opportunity to practice with each given day, I'm, I'm able to really kind of treat life as my expressive partner. And yeah. that's what consistent practice has done for me. Well, just being able to do this podcast with you and listeners, you can't see it, obviously, but I'm looking at some hardwood floors, these beautiful kind of lavender walls. I see a guitar. I see a beautiful cat in the back left right there. I see drumming. Yes. There's some really beautiful art. You're dressed vibrantly and and the smile on your face is just, just expansive. And I see a little speaker over there on the side. So this this is what you live. This is, mm -hmm. this is what you live in. And this is just accessible to you at any time, isn't it? Correct. And thank you for noticing my cat. Yes, Misty yeah, is awesome. usually with me. He's she's awesome. sometimes right up at my chair in the back. <laughs> but talk about mindfulness educators. I did not grow up with animals, but in my adult life, I have had cats That's awesome. and a dog here and there. But the cats have taught me, hey, let yeah. me do exactly what feels good in my body at any given time, whether that's taking moment. a rest or <laughs> doing right. a stretch or running at warp speed through the house and She's just a, a very big example of presence for me and how That's presence so cool. can be very healing. Just a quick little story. When I was doing my master's work, doing some work with kids, had a chance to do some animal assisted therapy. I was working with the blind. I was part of their board and I borrowed one of the seeing eye dogs to go work with the kids at this uh, school for autism. And, and when I finished, the dog was retiring. She mm -hmm. asked if I wanted to keep the dog. I said, absolutely. I had this beautiful white lab. And then I worked for the state mental health department. I took her to work with me every single day and mm. she would come into therapy sessions and she would just, she would just kind of, like you said, just kind of know what to do and how to be. So okay. I'm sitting with a couple one time who's just in distress and having a hard, hard time. She's on the floor laying by their feet just asleep. And they have this huge contentious exchange. And they just kind of come to, you know, one of those pauses that happens after an exchange like that. And somehow, <laughs> somehow she just kind of goes, ah. And it just broke the whole mood. It mm -hmm. just kind of reset everything. So like you're saying, they bring it a kind of an awareness, don't they? Of just how yes, to be in do. moments that's beyond what we sometimes recognize. They're a great addition, aren't they, to our lives? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Agreed. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Hey, you know, we're going to kind of come into the home lap here, but we love stories on the show. And just mm-hmm. to hear about maybe someone you saw go through a process that walked in the door the first time with you and, and got into a conversation and you were listening and being present. And then you saw them kind of go through this process. What kind of transformation do you hear and see in this recovery and through the mindfulness, through the MDR, through the movement, et cetera? What are you seeing in someone's life? Paint a picture for us. It's really, if I had to summarize it, for people who are embracing of it, it leads them to a place where they're able to live in a very authentic way. And I think I'm sometimes able to do that as a teacher, even more than as a therapist with with some of my students and some of my Mm -hmm. team that that I work with talking about stories. We we kind of have this joke in the, I say joke, but it's, it's really very true in the dancing mindfulness community. And we have a retreat every year and every year, every spring on the retreat, there's kind of this joke of, okay, who's getting divorced this year? Uh Because... A lot of people who came, who have come in to and to kind of working in this way, have been in very stuck, stifled relationships that have been a product of of their trauma. And I don't mean to glamorize divorce in any way, but you know, for a lot of us, that's part of our journey and our path. And I was one of the divorces one year on the retreat, realizing, yeah, I I, I got into this relationship as a reaction and not as a, a full embrace of love. And so. You know, I think of two of my dear friends who both work within ICM right now who are fully in love with each other and they've embraced partnership. And when I first met them, they were both in very stuck relationships that weren't going anywhere. So, and I look at both of their individual journeys and it's been something about how their coming out process, how they're embracing of healing process has really helped them to embrace life from this very authentic place. So I, like I think that. when I could see people do that, either as my students or as my clients, uh, that, that, that helps me know that this is why we do what we do. I really like that. You know, that word authenticity, living an authentic life. I think that's not appreciated for really what it can be. It kind of takes me back to what you said earlier, being able to be with what is, hmm. you know, being able to be with the truth that really is about you, your life, your heart, your needs, embracing all those things in love. I, I really like that. And that I think that authentic life, you know, is, is something to pursue. And I see that's what you're doing with your work at the Creative Institute. Real, real quick, you just finished a book, uh, Healing Addiction yes. with EMDR Therapy. Give us, the, give us the two minute on that one. Sure. Well, it's funny because I I have several book projects in the till right now. So yes, the one that is most newly out on the market is Healing Addiction with EMDR Therapy. That is primarily for other EMDR professionals, though. It's more of a a text-driven book for helping EMDR professionals more holistically, more totally work with addiction. Uh, I have two others that are coming out within the next year. One is coming out in March, Transforming Trauma with Jiu-Jitsu. We didn't talk much about Jiu-Jitsu and martial arts. But I, uh, I also developed a jujitsu practice several years back as a way to really work with some of the physical trauma I was holding in my body. So with that book, my writing partner, Anna Perkle, she is more the advanced jujitsu practitioner. She's also a therapist, though. So she contributed most of the jujitsu content, and I contributed a lot of the trauma content with some of my own story of how martial arts was another way I embraced movement in this healing journey. And then I just finished up the draft of another book that'll be out in early 2023 called Dissociation Made Simple, which is part of my Made Simple series of other books that I have. Outstanding. If people want to learn about the Institute for Creative Mindfulness and also about you, 
What mm. are some sites where they can go and uh, check out? Sure. Well, instituteforcreativemindfulness.com is where you can find the information about the company and look into trainings and retreats and, and the like with us. Probably the biggest resource I like to pitch, though, on these podcasts is traumamadesimple.com traumamadesimple.com. That is a free resources site I set up for clients and clinicians alike. It is basically everything for free I've done that's available on the interwebs you can get there. So a lot of uh, my YouTube videos link there, uh, podcast interviews I repost there, articles I've done. Because I, I do recognize that therapy can be a barrier for a lot of people in terms of affordability. And I want to make sure that there's a lot out there that people can access without charge. So traumamadesimple.com is what I'd like to recommend. And you could also look up my name name.com just for more of info about me. Very good. I love that idea of the, and I appreciate when clinicians do that, that trauma made simple. Just that's a, that's an example where you started with us today, that kind of that giving forward, just giving things away in ways that can be really beneficial to people's lives. Well, Jamie, it's been great to be with you today. So much fun to interview you and thanks for all you're bringing and kind of sharing with our listeners. And we appreciate you being on the show. My great pleasure. Really enjoyed it. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining Jamie and me today. It's always great to have you with us. I want to remind you that this episode, its resources, and all our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So go check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT, and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we will look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.